0: All right, the, the before-lunch gig. We'll see how this goes. Um, so we spoke um, just now, about an hour ago, about Solomon. And um, I hope I didn't leave you you know, so despondent and despairing that I oh, forget like everyone came back, so we're OK. Um, so uh, anyway. We said last time that it's the things that you you work really hard to accomplish, but find that you can't, and those are the things that are really crushing when you you don't do them. Uh, Solomon, we said, succeeded in everything he set his hands to. He amassed great wealth, built magnificent buildings, planted beautiful gardens, cultivated the finest vines drank the best wine, assembled the finest choir. His needs were met by the most superbly trained slaves, and he enjoyed all of it. You don't want to think that he was having a miserable time. He was having a good time. But what he really wanted, what he was actually striving for in all those things, in all of those endeavors, was something under the sun, corresponding to the eternity God set into his soul. And in that, he was a failure at least in the early part of his life, he failed. But God breathed out Solomon's account of his failure for a purpose. And the purpose is to awaken you to the futility of life. Now, you might might think that's not a very nice thing for God to do. Uh, Here I was kind of enjoying life, and I read Ecclesiastes and listened to this talk, and now I'm depressed. But it's not at all... Unlike reading Romans 1 through 3. There you are, thinking you're a pretty good person. Not perfect, but not wicked. I mean, you're not Hitler or anything. And, uh, and if there is a heaven, probably you're going to go there. Uh, you haven't murdered anybody or done anything that bad. And then you, you read cheerful lines like, No one is good. Not even one. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. And that's uh, kind of depressing. I think, well, maybe I'll try a little harder than the next guy. Maybe I'll give a dollar to that annoying guy at the intersection who has that I'm hungry sign, and maybe that'll do something. And then you read at the end of that argument that Paul makes, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of your sin, or of sin. And you just throw up your hands. What's the use then? I might as well give up. And of course, that's when God has you, you know, right where he wants you. He wants you there. Ecclesiastes works the same way. If you're not paying attention, you could go through life thinking, if only I could afford this school or win this event or get this promotion, if only my marriage were not so beset by conflict, if only my career were not so dull, if only I'd made different decisions, and all would be well. Life would not be ridden with anxiety and sorrow and distress. Then I would be satisfied and have peace and joy. And then you get the thing that you're trying to get. And it turns out, no, really, it's not that thing at all, but it's this other thing. Maybe if I try for this other thing, I'll I'll find what I'm looking for. And you're just like that gerbil in the gerbil cage that runs around in that gerbil thing. What is it? The, The gerbil... Bang, right, whatever. Uh, and so, so Solomon helps us there. He tells you uh, you're setting your eggs in a basket with no bottom. You're pouring your water into a bucket with full of holes. You're not getting anywhere. Uh, so now what? Uh, Solomon's answer, as we said toward the end of last time, uh, Solomon's answer is a good and and true one, but it's not the whole truth. He basically says, all right, uh, enjoy your work, enjoy your family, enjoy your stuff, but just know that these things are vapor in the end. They're passing away, and they aren't able to bear the weight of your soul. And he kind of leaves you there. But of course, God wasn't finished answering the dilemma that Solomon raised. So I want to move forward in time. Uh, from Solomon, uh, to the the streets of of Jerusalem. Uh, Not really the streets, maybe a single alley. Not too narrow or, or too small, but just tucked away enough that what happens in the alley might stay in the alley, or so the men gathered there would have believed. There's a good number of them, restive and religious. They have leather straps wrapped around their wrists, Smaller the boxes affixed to their foreheads, the front locks of their hairs. hair hangs braided and uncut. One by one they hand their cloaks to a young, intense-looking man, dressed as they are, but who, though he takes their cloaks and maybe drapes them over some low wall, is not a servant. In fact, he oversees the entire affair. At the center of the throng, perhaps backed against a wall, stands a Greek man, once a convert to their religion, now an apostate, they think. His name, if you have guessed it by now, is Stephen. He's a Christian. For Saul, the holder of the cloaks, that means he must die. He's gathered the men to kill him. Now, if you you know anything about how Romans ran things, you know that Romans, formally speaking, forbid the sort of thing that's about to happen. But so long as it's done discreetly, the Romans know you turn a blind eye, not get involved. And so the men with uh, lethal hands and practiced eyes, they've killed before, choose just the right stones lying on the alley floor, and in a very short while, Stephen is dead. It's a strange death, though. No begging, no crying out. Uh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he said, looking into heaven, and his eyes were clearly fixed on something. Then, Lord, don't hold this sin against them, he said. We shouldn't doubt that, that Saul tried to shove the scene out of his mind. Saul of Tarsus for his age, he's probably in his mid-thirties about this time, uh, wielded extraordinary power. He commanded respect even from the elders and chief priests of Israel. He was he was born in modern day Turkey, but he's not a Gentile convert. He's a Benjamite, the son of a Pharisee who himself was a son of Pharisees going back several generations. His family seems to have been prominent and wealthy, wealthy enough so that Saul was able to be sent to Jerusalem at a very early age to, to study law under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, we can't say, uh, since he never mentions it, and this is kind of speculation, but, but he was probably betrothed, Saul was, and married around the age of 15 or 16. His, his political ascent would have been very difficult to understand or explain otherwise. In any case, all the boxes a well-born, aspiring Jew would need to check to ensure a distinguished, honored, lucrative career as a teacher and a statesman in Israel, Saul checked all of them. He had a keen and thorough grasp of the law, which, as a Pharisee, he observed by way of the tradition of the elders. It's the austere code that the Pharisees believed God gave to Moses uh, on Sinai and they, they passed down orally through the generations if that's what they believed. The code acted as a kind of fence uh, protecting the written law. If you were careful to observe the tradition of the elders, uh, you would stay within the boundaries uh, of the fence and not come close to breaking uh, the written law. And mentioned one of these codes last night. If you don't walk more than a certain number of steps in the Sabbath, and also if you don't pick any grain, uh, even one head off a stalk, to stave off hunger, you won't even come close to transgressing the law that says you must rest on the Sabbath and not work. And as burdensome as this code was, these practices were—they uh, were practices. They were, they were things that you, you did or did not do. Not one of them required you to test your heart, the place where God said eternity, by the demands of the law. So in the end, they were they were ultimately doable. You had to make an effort, but you could do it. And Saul did it. Saul considered himself, therefore, blameless before God. Of course, uh, if you were to talk to him, he would tell you definitely grace is involved in that. Uh, God had sovereignly chosen Israel, set the people apart, and he had chosen to give Saul birth into an Israelite family, a family in the covenant. And he had revealed the law, and he had given Saul a brilliant mind and the ability to follow these practices. All of these were unmerited gifts, he would say. And since Saul lived, or was a Pharisee, and lived much further down the stream of revelation than Solomon, he, like all Pharisees, believed that his soul would endure after death. That so long as he maintained his blamelessness under the law, he would be taken to Abraham's bosom, and that one day there would be a resurrection, and he would take part in that. There is very little that a young Saul would have considered futile or vain about his life under the sun. Now, atop all of that, top all of Saul's qualities and, and uh, his qualifications, you could stack zeal, uh, religious zeal. Gets a bad rap in our day. We tend to think of the guy in the corner who gets the you know, loudspeaker and says, you know, hell is for real. Repent. Um, In Saul's day, though, uh, you couldn't advance through the ranks, the Pharisaic ranks, without zeal. You had to be a zealous uh, Pharisee. Toward the end of of the 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelite elders began to shack up with Moabite women. God wasn't pleased, as you can imagine, and judgment came near uh, to Israel. But Phineas, the priest, took his spear and and drove it through the bodies of an Israelite elder and the Moabitess that he'd taken into his tent, and God's judgment was averted. Uh, The Pharisees considered themselves heirs to Phinehas. He was kind of their model for zeal. By their zeal, they thought they would save Israel from God's judgment and usher in the Messianic age. And that's why Saul was, was in that alley that day. That's why he devoted himself to hunting down the followers of Jesus of Nazareth and arresting, or better yet, killing them. They worshipped a man hung on a tree, a man cursed by God. And if they did do something, God's judgment would be coming. So now all Solomon had to do was to continue the race. If he had gone along the same path that he started. Today, our Jewish friends, if you have any Jewish friends, our Jewish friends would probably remember the great Rabbi Saul alongside Gamaliel and Hillel. But you know the story. i am tell you anything you don't know. On the way to Damascus to hunt down Christians, Jesus revealed himself to Saul, and in an instant, Saul's heritage, his work... His strivings, his career to that point, meaningless. His blamelessness before God. His hands, he discovered, were actually stained with the blood of God's own son. His zeal to save Israel. He's a persecutor of Israel's savior. The implications of that were staggering. Saul had actually, and he realized this, I'm sure, in the days following, Saul had poured all of his water into a leaky bucket. God, Yahweh himself, took on flesh in order to die on a tree in order to become a curse. A substitutionary sacrifice. Then he rose from the dead and now sits at God's right hand. What does it say, he would have asked himself, about all our Righteousness. What does this mean with regard to our law-keeping? Vanity of vanities. That's what it means. It was the beginning for Saul of great loss. His Pharisee peers uh, would have viewed Saul's subsequent life with horror. He had dropped Phineas' spear, spear and taken up the Moabitess and her gods. If he did have a wife and she hadn't died young, she would have at this time uh, returned to her father's house because Saul at this point was dead. He died. He lost his place, his wealth, his respectability, everything that had been his. He, he threw it in, in a rubbish heap. Now, uh, you might at this point say, because you're all very good Christians, I know, um, I'm not so sure, you might say here, I'm not so sure that Paul is a helpful example of failing because he didn't fail. Paul gave up everything for the gospel. He's not a failure. You might even say that's not where I am at all at all. That's irrelevant to me. I'm not losing anything for Jesus' sake. I'm just losing. I'm failing through my own failed efforts. That's the shame I'm dealing with. What about that? Well, hold on, we'll come to that. But I'm glad you mentioned shame. <laughs> or I guess I mentioned it, pretending to be you. So. Um, when I think back to the greatest losses of my own life and those things I'm afraid of losing here and now, it's not just the loss of the thing. The position, the, the, the home the, the relationship, the status, that, that cuts deep. Don't get me wrong. But it's the judgment, it's the condemnation that comes with the loss that really makes failure sting. If I lived on a desert island and tried to, to rig up uh, one of those water wheels uh, so I could use a stream to, to turn my rotisserie chicken over the fire that I'd made, If I'm a castaway like Robinson Crusoe or whatever, Um, but I can't figure it out. I can't figure out how to do the the water wheel thing, and I'd just be frustrated because I failed to do that, and I have to turn the stinking thing myself. I'd be be upset. But if there were a stadium full of people watching me try to rig up the water wheel and fail and fail and fail, fail, I would be upset that I had to turn this thing myself, but I'd also think, wow, I bet they think I'm a real idiot. I just got back from a clergy retreat. I think I told some of these. Uh, this. one was good. Usually, uh, clergy retreats are nasty, brutish, and long. Um, Alistair Begg uh, said that a farmer once told him that preachers are, like, dumb. Um, you spread them out over a field, and that's, they do lots of good. Get them all together in a pile, though, and they just kind of stink. So, so. That's a true saying worthy of all acceptance. Um, one of one of the reasons uh, clergy tend to hate clergy retreats is that there's always the questions: How many people do you have on a Sunday? Are you growing? How many baptisms this year? Now, people who ask those questions mean well; they don't usually are not usually trying to measure up, but but if your answer is no, mm, oh, we're not growing. We've lost people, in fact. We only have this small number on Sunday. I actually had more funerals than baptisms this year. Actually, I didn't have any baptisms this year. Well, coming to the conference, if, if that's you, you already feel rotten, but having to tell your story out loud, suddenly there's shame. It descends. Every vocation, I think, does have this element as well. If you're demoted at work, you have this sense that everyone's wondering what did he do wrong. If your children are screaming in the library, like where everyone's supposed to be quiet, and everyone's kind of looking at, at you. Uh, you imagine people are thinking, "What a terrible mother that is." If your spouse leaves you, to the sorrow is added the possibility that people are asking, "What did he do?" Or, "Wow, she couldn't even keep him, could she?" And sadly, that possibility is often reality. People are thinking those kinds of things. Now, now just to push back a bit on the idea that Paul's experience is irrelevant, I want you to note two things. First of all, Paul's life in Judaism was utter folly and failure. To the extent that you and I, even as believers, set our souls down into the work of our hands and try to rest there, we replicate that failure. Second, Paul's entire life and work after Judaism was shrouded in the humiliation of loss. Those surveying his new life in Christ from the perspective of Judaism, of course, saw him as a titanic failure. But many Christians shared that view, too. Paul's apostleship, from the perspective of the first-century people for whom the whole Christian thing is brand new, seems suspect. He's not one of the twelve, after all. And second, consider his record. Paul helps us with this in Second Corinthians. Let me just read you his record. Uh, five times I received at the hands of Jews of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Now, that for us is, is a kind of encouraging passage. Wow, look what he, look what he endured. But, but put yourself back in the era in which he wrote that. The beatings, the stonings, the deprivations, the shipwrecks. Shouldn't? This is the new covenant era. Shouldn't, shouldn't he go from strength to strength? Jesus is sovereign over everything. He said, my father has given me all authority and power in heaven and earth. So why is his apostle in such poor shape? Why is he always being given over to loss? Why would Christ let his apostle be so dishonored, so ill-used? Maybe Paul's doing something wrong. Maybe there's something off about his ministry. A good shepherd, I'm um, preaching through Philippians, and, and Paul uh, writes to the Philippians through, from Rome. Uh, five years earlier, he'd written the letter to the Romans, and he, he told them in, in chapter 15, I think it is, uh, I know, he told this to, to the Roman churches, I know when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Of course, he arrives in Rome. I'm in Roman custody, right? he's, he's a prisoner. And he's put under house arrest. Now you might think, a uh, house arrest, that's not so bad. Uh, put me on house arrest all day, fine. I'll curl up with a nice book and, and read and, and hang out. But th- that's not the kind of house arrest that he was under. He had, a, he had a Praetorian guard chained to his left wrist. Every six hours, a new, a new one would come along or leave the old one. So he's sleeping, eating, bathing, everything else. There is a Praetorian guard right right with him, hanging out. Watching him. And Paul's awaiting trial before Nero, who in all probability uh, will decide that worshiping a crucified Jew as Lord and Savior, those are imperial titles, by the way, is treason and worthy of death. So just speaking personally about Paul, I'd be unhappy, I'd be anxious, I'd be worried about things. Um, and, and I would maybe think about how, how things were back in my, my former life under, under Judaism. Uh, the church of Philippi uh, has been one of Paul's most financially supportive congregations. He, he needs that support to continue if he's going to eat. Uh, because remember, he's paying his own way while he's under, under guard. But Philippi is, is a military town. It's a, it's a Roman colony, and it's populated by retired soldiers living on pensions that the emperor uh, gives them for their service to him. The church in Philippi is is 10 years old by the time Paul writes to them from Rome, and it's likely made up of military men and their households, largely. Men who bled and who killed and who have seen friends die for the emperor. Men who are loyal to and and deeply respect Rome, its laws, and, and, and Nero himself. So when they hear that Paul is under house arrest, there's consternation. Should we continue to be associated with this guy? Probably a little shame. That he planned their church. Can we continue to, to support him? Why would God allow this to happen? So Paul writes to them, and, and the real part I want to look at, because it's going to help us answer Solomon is verses 18 through, uh, 18 through uh, 21 in, in verse 1, chapter 1, but I just want to summarize what he says is he's writing to the Philippians before we get there. He says, first of all, my imprisonment is actually served to advance the gospel. Uh, the entire Praetorian Guard knows that I'm in chains for Christ. Uh You have to feel, I know this is an old joke, but you do have to feel sorry for the poor guys. You know, you you, you, at first feel sorry for Paul because you have someone watching you all the time. But but then the poor Roman guards, they're stuck to Paul for six hours. How would you like to be a pagan? Stuck to Paul, chained to Paul for six hours. You can't get away. There's no escape. He's going to talk to you all those six hours about the gospel. So many of them, as you can expect, because that's true, many of them actually believe the gospel, Paul says. And some some have become his brothers. And, And the conversion of the Praetorians, he says, uh, has inspired both my friends in Rome and my enemies in Rome to preach the gospel more boldly. And so, uh, regardless of my situation and my, the motives by which, for which people reach the gospel, I rejoice because people are being rescued from death and hell. But it's this next section I want us to focus on, beginning there in verse 18, if you, can, if you have your Bibles open, in verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Pay attention to that word, deliverance. Um, It's soter, which is most often translated salvation, and most often used to describe salvation from sin, death, and hell. But the word can be used for any kind of deliverance, healing, release from prison, and Paul knows that. And I think... He knows that the Philippians will assume that by soter, he means, I know I'll be set free from prison. He knows they're ashamed by his situation, that his position is an embarrassment to them. He knows that reading that line, they'll probably breathe a sigh of relief. Paul has used his super apostolic prophecy power uh, to tell us that he's going to get out of this, this mess Ah, things are going to get better. But Paul's just laying a trap because he wants to change the way they think about failure and loss and weakness and shame. And that's what Paul does in verse 20. As it is, he knows he's going to turn up for his deliverance. As it is, because my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. By life or by death? Now, if you know you're going to be delivered, Paul, then then what's this about death? Now, by delivered, Paul means God will keep me in Christ until the end. That's what he means. Whatever that end may be. Paul doesn't mean my situation will improve. He means, as he said earlier in Philippians, he who began a good work in me will bring it to fruition. So that I won't be ashamed and Christ will be honored in my life and death. And that's that's not at all what the Philippians would expect. Paul's under guard. He's being tried. That's already a humiliation. To be executed for treason, there's no honor in that. No deliverance. But you know, Paul is unconcerned about the judgments of Roman military culture any more than he would be concerned about the judgments of American celebrity culture or the judgments of any culture. So long as he has Christ and God gives him the grace to preach Christ, which is what Paul is sure that he'll be able to do, it really doesn't matter if he lives. If he lives, Nero will have heard of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save sinners and will have been called to repent if Paul's beheaded, Nero will know he's beheaded for Christ. Either way, Christ is on. I've got nothing to lose, Paul would think, except what can't be kept anyway, but I have Christ now and forever. That is ultimately I think where Christ wants you, to, you and me to be. I think it's why he brings Loss and suffering and failure into your life and into mine. Anxiety, fear, suffering, they teach you. They teach you this world and the things in it cannot bear the weight of eternity. That's Solomon's lesson. Solomon came to know that by gaining everything the world has to offer, he figured it out, and when he gained it all, uh, that, that that his soul was still not satisfied. You and I, however, more often, come to learn that lesson by frustration rather than success. I want my work to give me lasting contentment, but the roller coaster of success and failure and loss and gain tells me that it can't. I want Anne to satisfy me, but she can't. I want the next book I read, or the next exercise program, or the next diet to provide joy. It can't. It won't. Frustration, failure, dissatisfaction tells me all of that, just like success told that. Or gave that lesson to Solomon. But where Solomon essentially says, Carpe diem, enjoy what passing pleasures you can, just know they can't satisfy your soul, and he leaves you there. Paul says, verse 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, does that sound different in your mind than vanity of vanities? All is vanity? Think about those two statements. To live is Christ, Paul says. Solomon said, vanity of vanities. Consider what he's been through. The, the, the beatings, the imprisonments, the, the shipwrecks, the stonings. They haven't taught him that life is vain and a vapor. God has, has, through each of those, through anxiety, through fear, through suffering, not simply, as with Solomon, pried Paul's hands off the things of this world, but God has also fastened Paul's hope, his life, in and on Christ alone. He's revealed to Paul, and through Paul and others, Uh, to you that God set eternity in your hearts so that he might satisfy you with Christ and I know you've all heard that before in Christ if the weight of your soul is set upon him nothing you do is ultimately vain nothing in the end actually falls to the ground Look at what Paul writes in the very next verse. It's actually verse 22. It's it's remarkable. If I am to live in the flesh, it's under the sun, and Paul said, here he's not talking about flesh like sin. He's saying, if I'm to live in the flesh as under the sun, this world, that means, and if this is Solomon, he'd say vanity of vanities, but Paul says, that means fruitful labor for me. Now, how, Solomon, Solomon would ask here, how can labor truly Bear fruit in a world in which everything rots and passes away and everything's vaporous and and dies and goes goes the way of all the things of the earth. Solomon in Ecclesiastes was working with the curse that came down in Adam, wasn't he? Uh, Cursed be the ground because of you, God said. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Yes. But God the Son has come to us in Jesus and has become the curse for us. In his death, Futility itself dies. By his resurrection, all creation is being restored and made new. So, so, of course, in Christ, if you are in Christ, whether you live or die or fail or succeed, nothing is lost. Let's say you lose your job. Because of your own fault, because you messed up. You did something stupid or foolish or wicked even. Let's in fact say it's a moral problem. You you lied or something at your job. You lost it. Well, that sin is washed away in the blood of Christ. That's gone. Because of Christ, God doesn't see that. But whatever labor you did in that job before you lost it, whatever labor you did there, Whatever kind word you spoke to your coworkers, the extra effort you put in to to make the project come off well, the prayer you prayed for your friends and your boss, even. Those labors may indeed pass away unremembered by everyone else, but Christ keeps them. They don't pass away. The gold and the silver and the precious stones of First Corinthians 3 that just reside forever. They'll pass away. The feeling of humiliation for losing your job or whatever it might be, losing whatever you're losing, the feeling of humiliation might remain for a season because you're human and you feel that, but all the good that Christ brought forth in your efforts remains into eternity. Which is one reason why Paul writes later, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. <laughs> to die at any time, young or old, for the Christian is always gain. he says that, we know that, because then we see him face to face. The sin and the confusion that, that here confounds our hearts will be removed and we will be utterly and forever uh, satisfied. But for now... You became a Christian, I hope anyway, because by God's grace, you let the law do its work. It revealed to you the vanity and the vapor of striving to establish your own righteousness before God. And so you fled to Christ and found refuge for your soul and rest there in him. Let the trouble that God gives you to endure the heartbreak, the uncertainty, and the terrible, dramatic failures. Let those things do their work. Instead of despair and despondency, let it weaken your grip, lessen your dependency on the things that and the people who cannot be Christ for you, and take hold even more firmly of Christ who is in you and who loves you. And in whom whom all your labors, whether they fail or succeed, bear fruit for eternity. To die is indeed gain. Let's not lose sight of that, but don't forget to live as Christ. Thank you.